Chapter Eleven, Part One of the Jacket by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. The door clanged, shutting out all but a little light, and I was left alone on my back. By the tricks I had long since learned in the jacket, I managed to writhe myself across the floor an inch at a time until the edge of the sole of my right shoe touched the door. There was an immense cheer in this. I was not utterly alone. If the need arose, I could at least rat-knuckle talk to Morrell. But Warden Atherton must have left strict injunctions on the guards, for, though I managed to call Morrell and tell him I intended trying the experiment, he was prevented by the guards from replying. Me they could only curse, for, in so far as I was in the jacket for a ten-day's bout, I was beyond all threat of punishment. I remember remarking at the time my serenity of mind. The customary pain of the jacket was in my body, but my mind was so passive that I was no more aware of the pain than I was aware of the floor beneath me or the walls around me. Never was a man in better mental and spiritual condition for such an experiment. Of course, this was largely due to my extreme weakness, but there was more to it. I had long schooled myself to be oblivious to pain. I had neither doubts nor fears. All the content of my mind seemed to be an absolute faith in the overlordship of the mind. This passivity was almost dreamlike, and yet, in its way, it was positive almost to a pitch of exultation. I began my concentration of will. Even then my body was numbing and prickling through the loss of circulation. I directed my will to the little toe of my right foot, and I willed that toe to cease to be alive in my consciousness. I willed that toe to die to die so far as I, its lord, and a different thing entirely from it, was concerned. There was the hard struggle. Morell had warned me that it would be so. But there was no flicker of doubt to disturb my faith. I knew that toll would die, and I knew when it was dead. Joint by joint it had died under the compulsion of my will. The rest was easy, but slow, I will admit. Joint by joint, toe by toe, all the toes of both my feet ceased to be and joint by joint the process went on. Came the time when my flesh below the ankles had ceased. Came the time when all below my knees had ceased. Such was the pitch of my perfect exultation that I knew not the slightest prod of rejoicing at my success. I knew nothing save that I was making my body die. All that I was was devoted to that sole task. I performed the work as thoroughly as any mason laying bricks, and I regarded the work as just about as commonplace as would a brick mason regard his work. At the end of an hour my body was dead to the hips, and from the hips up, joint by joint, I continued to will the ascending death. It was when I reached the level of my heart that the first blurring and dizzying of my consciousness occurred. For fear that I should lose consciousness, I willed to hold the death I had gained, and shifted my concentration to my fingers. My brain cleared again, and the death of my arms to the shoulders was most rapidly accomplished. At this stage my body was all dead, so far as I was concerned, save my head and a little patch of my chest. No longer did the pound and smash of my compressed heart echo in my brain. My heart was beating steadily but feebly. The joy of it, had I dared joy at such a moment, would have been the cessation of all sensations. At this point my experience differs from Morell's. Still willing, automatically, I began to grow dreamy, as one does in that borderland between sleeping and waking. Also, 
it seemed as if a prodigious enlargement of my brain was taking place within the skull itself that did not enlarge. There were occasional glintings and flashings of light, as if even I, the overlord, had ceased for a moment, and the next moment was again myself, still the tenant of the fleshy tenement that I was making to die. Most perplexing was the seeming enlargement of brain. Without having passed through the wall of skull, nevertheless it seemed to me that the periphery of my brain was already outside my skull and still expanding. Along with this was one of the most remarkable sensations or experiences that I have ever encountered. Time and space, in so far as they were the stuff of my consciousness, underwent an enormous extension. Thus, without opening my eyes to verify, I knew that the walls of my narrow cell had receded until it was like a vast audience chamber. And while I contemplated the matter, I knew that they continued to recede. The whim struck me for a moment that if a similar expansion were taking place with the whole prison, then the outer walls of San Quentin must be far out in the Pacific Ocean on one side, and on the other side must be encroaching on the Nevada desert. A companion whim was that since matter could permeate matter, then the walls of my cell might well permeate the prison walls, pass through the prison walls, and thus put my cell outside the prison and put me at liberty. Of course, this was pure fanciful whim, and I knew it at the time for what it was. The extension of time was equally remarkable. Only at long intervals did my heart beat. Again a whim came to me, and I counted the seconds, slow and sure, between my heartbeats. At first, as I clearly noted, over a hundred seconds intervened between beats. But as I continued to count, the intervals extended so that I was made weary of counting. And while this illusion of the extension of time and space persisted and grew, I found myself dreamily considering a new and profound problem. Morell had told me that he had won freedom from his body by killing his body, or by eliminating his body from his consciousness, which of course was in effect the same thing. Now my body was so near to being entirely dead that I knew in all absoluteness that by a quick concentration of will on the yet alive patch of my torso it too would cease to be. But, and here was the problem, and Morel had not warned me, should I also will my head to be dead? If I did so, no matter what befell the spirit of Darrell Standing, would not the body of Darrell Standing be forever dead? I chanced the chest and the slow-beating heart. The quick compulsion of my will was rewarded. I no longer had chest nor heart. I was only a mind, a soul, a consciousness. Call it what you will. Incorporate in a nebulous brain that, while it still centered inside my skull, was expanded, and was continuing to expand beyond my skull. And then, with flashings of light, I was off and away. At a bound I had vaulted prison roof and California sky, and was among the stars. I say stars advisedly. I walked among the stars. I was a child. I was clad in frail, fleece-like, delicate-colored robes that shimmered in the cool starlight. These robes, of course, were based upon my boyhood observance of circus actors and my boyhood conception of the garb of young angels. Nevertheless, thus clad, I trod interstellar space, exalted by the knowledge that I was bound on vast adventure, where, at the end, I would find all the cosmic formula and have made clear to me the ultimate secret of the universe. In my hand I carried a long glass wand. It was borne in upon me that with the tip of this wand I must touch each star in passing, 
and I knew, in all absoluteness, that did I but miss one star, I should be precipitated into some unplummeted abyss of unthinkable and eternal punishment and guilt. Long I pursued my starry quest. When I say long, you must bear in mind the enormous extension of time that had occurred in my brain. For centuries I trod space, with the tip of my wand and with unerring eye and hand, tapping each star I passed. Ever the way grew brighter, ever the ineffable goal of infinite wisdom grew nearer. And yet I made no mistake, there was no other self of time. This was no experience that had once been mine. I was aware all the time that it was I, Darrell Standing, who walked among the stars and tapped them with a wand of glass. In short, I knew that here was nothing real, nothing that had ever been nor could ever be. I knew that it was nothing else than a ridiculous orgy of the imagination, such as men enjoy in drug dreams, in delirium, or in mere ordinary slumber. And then, as all went merry and well with me on my celestial quest, the tip of my wand missed a star, and on the instant I knew I had been guilty of a great crime. And on the instant a knock, vast and compulsive, inexorable and mandatory as the stamp of the iron hoof of doom, smote me and reverberated across the universe. The whole sidereal system coruscated, reeled, and fell in flame. I was torn by an exquisite and disruptive agony, and on the instant I was Darrell standing, the life-convict, lying in his straitjacket in solitary, and I knew the immediate cause of that summons. It was a rap of the knuckle by Ed Morrell in cell five, beginning the spelling of some message. And now, to give some comprehension of the extension of time and space that I was experiencing. Many days afterwards I asked Morrell what he had tried to convey to me. It was a simple message, namely, Standing, are you there? He had tapped it rapidly, while the guard was at the far end of the corridor into which the solitary cells opened. As I say, he had tapped the message very rapidly. And now, behold, between the first tap and the second I was off and away among the stars, clad in fleecy garments, touching each star as I passed in my pursuit of the formula that would explain the last mystery of life. And, as before, I pursued the quest for centuries. Then came the summons, the stamp of the hoof of doom, the exquisite disruptive agony, and again I was back in my cell in San Quentin. It was the second tap of Edmorel's knuckle. The interval between it and the first tap could have been no more than a fifth of a second, and yet— so unthinkably enormous was the extension of time to me, that in the course of that fifth of a second I had been away star-roving for long ages. Now I know, my reader, that the foregoing seems all a farrago. I agree with you. It is farrago. It was experience, however. It was just as real to me as is the snake beheld by a man in delirium tremens. Possibly, by the most liberal estimate, it may have taken Edmorel two minutes to tap his question. Yet to me, eons elapsed between the first tap of his knuckle and the last. No longer could I tread my starry path with that ineffable pristine joy, for my way was beset with dread of the inevitable summons that would rip and tear me as it jerked me back to my straitjacket hell. Thus my eons of star-wandering were eons of dread. And all the time I knew it was Ed Morrell's knuckle that thus cruelly held me earthbound. I tried to speak to him, to ask him to cease, but so thoroughly had I eliminated my body from my consciousness that I was unable to resurrect it. My body lay dead in the jacket, though I still inhabited the skull. 
In vain I strove to will my foot to tap my message to Morel. I reasoned I had a foot, and yet, so thoroughly had I carried out the experiment, I had no foot. Next, and I know that it was because Morel had spelled his message quite out, I pursued my way among the stars and was not called back. After that, and in the course of it, I was aware, drowsily, that I was falling asleep, and that it was delicious sleep. From time to time, drowsily, I stirred. Please, my reader, don't miss that verb. I stirred. I moved my legs, my arms. I was aware of clean, soft bed linen against my skin. I was aware of bodily well-being. Oh, it was delicious! As thirsting men of the desert dream of splashing fountains and flowing wells, so dreamed I of easement from the constriction of the jacket, of cleanliness in the place of filth, of smooth velvety skin of health in place of my poor, parchment-crinkled hide. But I dreamed with a difference, as you shall see. I awoke. Oh, broad and wide awake I was, although I did not open my eyes. And please know that in all that follows I knew no surprise whatever. Everything was the natural and the expected. I was I, be sure of that. But I was not Darrell Standing. Darrell Standing had no more to do with the being I was than did Darrell Standing's parchment-crinkled skin have aught to do with the cool, soft skin that was mine. Nor was I aware of any Darrell Standing, as I could not well be, considering that Darrell Standing was as yet unborn and would not be born for centuries. But you shall see. I lay with closed eyes, lazily listening. From without came the clacking of many hoofs moving orderly on stone flags. From the accompanying jingle of metal bits of man-harness and steed-harness, I knew some cavalcade was passing by on the street beneath my windows. Also I wondered idly who it was. From somewhere, and I knew where, for I knew it was from the inn-yard, came the ring and stamp of hoofs and an impatient neigh that I recognized as belonging to my waiting horse. Came steps and movements, steps openly advertised as suppressed with the intent of silence, and yet were deliberately noisy with the secret intent of rousing me if I still slept. I smiled inwardly at the rascal's trick. Pons, I ordered, without opening my eyes. Water, cold water, quick, a deluge. I drank over long last night, and now my gullet scorches. And slept over long today, he scolded, as he passed me the water, ready in his hand. I sat up, opened my eyes, and carried the tankard to my lips with both hands, and as I drank I looked at Pons. Now note two things. I spoke in French. I was not conscious that I spoke in French. Not until afterward, back in solitary, when I remembered what I am narrating, did I know that I had spoken in French. Eh, and spoken well. As for me, Darrell Standing, at present writing these lines in Murderer's Row of Folsom Prison, why, I know only high school French sufficient to enable me to read the language. As for my speaking it, impossible. I can scarcely intelligibly pronounce my way through a menu. But to return. Pons was a little withered old man. He was born in our house, I know, for it chanced that mention was made of it this very day I am describing. Pons was all of sixty years. He was mostly toothless, and despite a pronounced limp that compelled him to go slippity-hop, he was very alert and spry in all his movements. Also, he was impudently familiar. This was because he had been in my house sixty years. He had been my father's servant before I could toddle, and after my father's death, Pons and I talked of it this day, he became my servant. 
the limp he had acquired on a stricken field in italy when the horsemen charged across he had just dragged my father clear of the hoofs when he was lanced through the thigh overthrown and trampled my father conscious but helpless from his own wounds witnessed it all and so as i say Pons had earned such a right to impudent familiarity that at least there was no gainsaying him by my father's son. Pons shook his head as I drained the huge drought. "'Did you hear it boil?' I laughed, as I handed back the empty tankard. "'Like your father,' he said hopelessly. "'But your father lived to learn better, which I doubt you will do.' "'He got a stomach affliction,' I deviled, so that one mouthful of spirits turned it outside in. It were wisdom not to drink when one's tank will not hold the drink. While we talked, Pons was gathering to my bedside my clothes for the day. "'Drink on, my master,' he answered. "'It won't hurt you. You'll die with a sound stomach.' "'You mean mine is an iron-lined stomach?' I willfully misunderstood him. "'I mean,' he began with a quick peevishness, then broke off as he realized my teasing, and with a pout of his withered lips draped my new sable cloak upon a chair-back. Eight hundred ducats, he sneered, a thousand goats and a hundred fat oxen in a coat to keep you warm, a score of farms on my gentleman's fine back. And in that a hundred fine farms, with a castle or two thrown in, to say nothing perhaps of a palace, I said, reaching out my hand and touching the rapier, which he was just in the act of depositing on the chair. So your father won with his good right arm, Pons retorted, but what your father won he held. Here Pons paused to hold up to scorn my new scarlet satin doublet, a wondrous thing of which I had been extravagant. Sixty ducats for that, Pons indicted. Your father'd have seen all the tailors and Jews of Christendom roasting in hell before he'd have paid such a price. And while we dressed, that is, while Pons helped me to dress, I continued to quip with him. It is quite clear, Pons, that you have not heard the news, I said slyly whereat up pricked his ears like the old gossip he was. "'Late news?' he queried. "'Mayhap from the English court?' "'Nay,' I shook my head. "'But news perhaps to you, but old news for all of that. "'Have you not heard? "'The philosophers of Greece were whispering it nigh two thousand years ago. "'It is because of that news that I put twenty fat farms on my back, "'live at court, and am become a dandy. "'You see, Pons, the world is a most evil place.' Life is most sad. All men die, and being dead, well, are dead. Wherefore, to escape the evil and the sadness, men in these days, like me, seek amazement, insensibility, and the madnesses of dalliance. But the news, master, what did the philosophers whisper about so long ago? That God was dead, Pons, I replied solemnly. Didn't you know that? God is dead, and I soon shall be, and I wear twenty fat farms on my back. God lives, Pons asserted fervently. God lives, and his kingdom is at hand. I tell you, master, it is at hand. It may be no later than tomorrow that the earth shall pass away. So they said in old Rome, Pons, when Nero made torches of them to light their sports. Pons regarded me pityingly. Too much learning is a sickness, he complained. I was always opposed to it. But you must have your will and drag my old body about with you a studying astronomy and numbers in Venice, poetry and all the Italian folderols in Florence, and astrology in Pisa, and God knows what in that man-man country of Germany. Pish for the philosophers! I tell you, master, I, Pons, your servant, a poor old man who knows not a letter from a pike-staff, I tell you God lives, 
and the time you shall appear before him is short. He paused with sudden recollection, and added, He is here, the priest you spoke of. On the instant I remembered my engagement. Why did you not tell me before? I demanded angrily. What did it matter? Pond shrugged his shoulders. Has he not been waiting two hours as it is? Why didn't you call me? He regarded me with a thoughtful, censorious eye. And you rolling in bed and shouting like Chanticleer. Sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, cuckoo, noo, noo, cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo. He mocked me with the senseless refrain in an ear-jangling falsetto. Without doubt I had bawled the nonsense out on my way to bed. You have a good memory, I commented dryly, as I essayed a moment to drape my shoulders with the new sable cloak ere I tossed it to Pons to put outside. He shook his head sourly. No need of memory when you roared it over and over for the thousandth time, till half the inn was a knock at the door to spit you for the sleek killer you were. And when I had you decently in the bed, did you not call me to you and command, if the devil called, to tell him my lady slept? And did you not call me back again, and, with a grip on my arm that leaves it bruised and black this day, command me, as I loved life, fat meat, and the warm fire, to call you not of the morning save for one thing? Which was, I prompted, unable for the life of me to guess what I could have said. Which was the heart of one, a black buzzard, you said, by name Martinelli, whoever he may be, for the heart of Martinelli smoking on a gold platter. The platter must be gold, you said, and you said I must be calling you by singing, Sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo. Whereat you began to teach me how to sing, Sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo. And when Pons had said the name, I knew it at once for the priest, Martinelli, who had been knocking his heels two mortal hours in the room without. When Martinelli was permitted to enter, and as he saluted me by title and name, I knew at once my name and all of it. I was Count Guillaume de Saint-Mayeur. You see, only could I know then, and remember afterward, what was in my conscious mind. The priest was Italian, dark and small, lean as with fasting, or with a wasting hunger not of this world, and his hands were as small and slender as a woman's. But his eyes! They were cunning and trustless, narrow-slitted and heavy-lidded, at one and the same time as sharp as a ferret's and as indolent as a basking lizard's. "'There has been much delay, Count de saint Meur, he began promptly, when Pons had left the room at a glance from me. "'He whom I serve grows impatient.' "'Change your tune, priest,' I broke in angrily. "'Remember, you are not now in Rome.' "'My august master,' he began. "'Rules augustly in Rome, mayhap,' I again interrupted. "'This is France.' Martinelli shrugged his shoulders meekly and patiently, but his eyes, gleaming like a basilisk's, gave his shoulders the lie. "'My august master has some concern with the doings of France,' he said quietly. "'The lady is not for you. My master has other plans.' He moistened his thin lips with his tongue. "'Other plans for the lady, and for you.' Of course, by the lady, I knew he referred to the great Duchess Philippa, widow of Geoffrey, last Duke of Aquitaine. But great duchess, widow, and all, Philippa was a woman, and young, and gay, and beautiful, and by my faith fashioned for me. What are his plans? I demanded bluntly. They are deep and wide, Count St. Mayor, too deep and wide for me to presume to imagine, much less know or discuss with you or any man. Oh, I know big things are afoot, and slimy worms squirming underground, I said. 
They told me you were stubborn-necked, but I have obeyed commands. Martinelli arose to leave, and I arose with him. I said it was useless, he went on, but the last chance to change your mind was accorded you. My august master deals more fairly than fair. Oh, well, I'll think the matter over, I said angrily, as I bowed the priest to the door. He stopped abruptly at the threshold. The time for thinking is past, he said. It is decision I came for. I will think the matter over, I repeated, then added as afterthought, if the lady's plans do not accord with mine, then mayhap the plans of your master may fruit as he desires. For remember, priest, he is no master of mine. You do not know my master, he said solemnly. Nor do I wish to know him, I retorted. And I listened to the lithe light step of the little intriguing priest go down the creaking stairs. End of chapter 11, part 1